From ThatShelf.com, this is Black Hole Films. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. What's a black hole film, you ask? Well, you know those films you always meant to get around to watching, but you never did for whatever reason? Well, that's what they are. And this podcast is all about embracing them and checking those films off our lists and talking about them and whatever else happens to come up. I'm Canadian filmmaker Jeremy Lalonde, and I will be your host. You can follow me on Twitter at LalondeJeremy, or check out my website, JeremyLalonde.com, for more information on me and my projects. If you like the show, please subscribe to it, rate, review it, and leave a comment on whatever platform it is you're listening. It really does make a difference in helping to get more ears tuning in. And if you like this show, check out the others on the ThatShelf.com family of podcasts. And without further delay, let's get into this week's film. This is episode 264, and today I'm joined by Norm Wilner. Norm is a former film critic at Now Magazine and is now working at TIFF as a programmer. I'm also joined by writer Ian McIntyre and my son Ephraim. And we're going to sit down and watch a film together. So we're sitting down to watch Roxanne. I'm Jeremy, and I have not seen this film. I'm Ephraim. I have not seen Roxanne. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> I'm Ian. I've never seen Roxanne. I'm Norm, and I'm delighted for all of you. Because <laughs> Norm I, Wilner has seen everything. Almost everything. Almost I, everything. I saw Rock, what is it, 36 years old now? 1987. No, 35, of course, 35, just like Predator. I think they came out the same week or within weeks of each other. This and Predator? The summer of 1987 was wild. Robocop, Predator, Roxanne. I'm missing something really, really obvious, but it was a good year. One of those things does not fit. <laughs> that Sesame Street song is coming to my head. Yeah. One of these things is not <laughs> like the other. I don't know. I mean, they're all about. No, never mind. Um, nice no, try. I, we'll, we'll find it. I, I almost had it. Uh, no, <laughs> Roxanne is wonderful. Roxanne was the movie that everyone was very upset that Steve Martin didn't get an Oscar nomination for writing uh, hmm. as well as acting. Really? Yeah. That makes me all the more intrigued. But... Daryl Hannah, you may recall, <clears throat> was on the, the ceremony that year with a big fake nose. Right. Uh, that was her form of protest. It's, um, you know, you. what can I say? It's an update of Cyrano de Bergerac. You know this. Yes, I know that. Uh, you don't know that story at all, right? Nope. And I haven't seen the new Peter Dinklage one either yet. That's good. We screened it at Secret Movie Club. Yeah, um, I've heard it's good. It's a fun, weird time. Yeah. yeah. It's a fun, weird time. You're, I'm you're in. constantly aware it shouldn't work, because the songs are all dirges. They're written by the national guys, and so it's all very low and slow. But it has this... Dinklage is amazing. Haley Atwell's very good. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kelvin Harrison Jr., also very, very good. Assuming I've identified the right actor, God, I don't know anymore. I'm very, very tired. That's okay. Uh, but um, it, it kind of has this this snowball power. It just by the time it's over, it really does land. Nice. Uh, so you, I'm talking to you from. You would know nothing about this movie besides yep. the fact that Stephen Martin's in it. I like to send Ephraim in as cold as possible. Sure, sure. Because you never have that experience, right? No, I've been enjoying listening to the episodes where you discover stuff and actually get to experience it. It's wonderful. Yeah, we're just starting to now go through the uh, the Daniel Craig run of Bond oh. now that it's over because he hasn't seen any of them. So I saw two. You, that's true. You, you have, we watched the newest one, and so he has seen the latest, so he knows the ending. And Casino Royale. But now we went back and we watched Casino Royale, which he really, really. Casino Royale is not bad. You've seen the first and the last. Maybe stop there. <laughs> Skyfall's good. Okay, Skyfall's pretty good. It's I'll, not I'll give great, it that. but it Skyfall's convinces good. you it's good in the moment. Which is all the really- none of them are as good as Casino Royale. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not looking forward to going back into Quantum. 
all I remember about Quantum of Solace was that I sat too close to the screen for what they were doing. Like it had that <laughs> that, that green grass style where they're just yeah yeah everything just shaky. Yeah, we don't need to chore- choreograph things if we just keep the camera moving. No. Yeah, yeah, exactly. James Bond is in there somewhere. Yeah, and he'll probably win. Yeah, that guy from Diving Around the Butterfly up close in the theater might, that might be a little much. Actually, I do love the fact that they cast Matthew Emmerich as the as the villain and then allowed him to play a Matthew Emmerich character, which is that like when he gets hurt, he starts crying and screaming. It's great. It's great. <laughs> Amazing. You want him to get punched in the face. Oh yeah. So what do you know about? Roxanne. Um, I know that this is the podcast I go on when I want to watch Steve Martin movies I've never seen. <laughs> Apparently, right? Yeah, yeah, there's a real run of that. Um, I Again, I know it's Cyrano de Bergerac, and I know it's a thing that when I tell people I haven't seen it, they look at me funny, and are they're like, you're a bad student of comedy. I feel like this is one of those ones where it just it escaped me because when it came out and it was big... I was too young and I couldn't rent it. They wouldn't let me rent it at the video store. And my parents never rented it for some reason. Uh, and then I never got around to it afterwards. That's so, it is such an innocuous film. I mean, there is sort of a nude <laughs> scene, but it's dealt with almost like it happened one night levels of charm. Yeah. Um, and it's not, there's nothing in it that's, in any, I don't even know that there's language. It's just so, it's so beautiful and pure. And I, I listened to the LA Story episode and I could hear you guys pushing back against some of the the earnestness in there because it just, it really does. Oh, I love like the it. earnestness in it. But there's, not everyone did. Oh, sure. Okay, yeah. Um, but this is even more of that in a weird way. It's okay. just that he's not scoring it with Enya and so it's a little, <laughs> it's like it's easier to take. It's This is just an absolute charmer of a film. So I'm not getting any Enya in this tonight? No, I don't think it was 1987. Flip's table. Ian's out. Don't flip this table. It's very heavy. <laughs> <laughs> table I don't think I could table. if I tried, no. <laughs> I can't sail away. <laughs> Uh, no, it's it's lovely. I'm not going to say anything about it. I but I will say that watching what Martin is doing now in Only Murders in the Building, like there's a direct line in the way he handles himself on screen and knows what he's capable of mm-hmm. and what he can do as a writer mm. for himself as an actor. That's you'll see it right away. He knows exactly how to like. There's there's a throwaway line in Only Murders a couple of weeks ago. Where I haven't seen the new season, but it's as, long, as long as it doesn't spoil anything, it's great. No, no, it's, just, it's it's part of the runner that started in the first season about how his his character, Martin Short's character, can't relate to kids at all, <laughs> um, it, like to the point of texting and cell phones and everything. They just it befuddles them. And there is a little moment where he's trying to distract his sort of the girl who would have been his stepdaughter, who is, who's absent from the first season but shows up in the second. Uh, and he's just trying to distract her while the adults have a conversation, refusing to accept that this kid is like 16 and can follow along probably better than he can. And he just had, he says very dismissively, you can play some games on your telephone. And his enunciation, and it's like music. <laughs> Roxanne has a line that's almost, deli- it's delivered with the same sort of joy and elocution. I don't know how to say it without sounding pretentious, but he knows his instrument better than any other writer, actor, comedian. Like, when he's in the zone, mm. he writes for himself. So, like, Bowfinger... Bowfinger's so good. That's yes. a movie you have to yeah. watch. Underrated movie. Yeah. He knows what to do. Mm-hmm. And as a writer, he knows how to let himself do it. And Roxanne is basically just a showcase for his joy in performance and writing. Like, this was the movie where I think... Okay, I interviewed him in 92. I've actually had that incredible pleasure. First of all, the guy is built... He's a dancer. He's huge. He's much bigger than you think he is. He's like 6'2". 
and he's broad-shouldered and muscular. Like he, at least in 1992, it was jarring how good-looking and <laughs> shape this guy is. Because he's got white hair, and you know you don't. See he, and he's got like a face that looks like an everyman. Like it's, yeah. it's got like, it's got a shape to it. You don't see him as someone who like works out, mm. right? But there was a, a special. He did a series of specials for Lorne Michaels. During the SNL days in the late seventies, they're all on a box set from Chef Factory. Oh Seven. yes! And there's one if you've seen the one with Gregory Hines. They do a dance off, and he holds oh, his own yeah. against Gregory Hines, who is like incredibly gifted physically. Yeah, yeah. And you know when you you start to think about all the stuff he does in The Jerk and the Man with like he's always doing something weirdly balletic with his body. He does a lot of that in Roxanne, but he said at the time because I interviewed him for House Sitter, which was a film he was not hugely proud of, but selling it because he was a pro. And he did say, like, well, you know, we were asking him if he was going to do something else as a screenwriter because he'd just done Ellie's story and there was another one, Simple Twist of Fate, which ends up being a version of Silas Marner because uh, he only wants to rewrite the classics, apparently, for yeah. himself, which he stopped doing. But he says, like, well, with Roxanne, I was kind of showing off. And it's like, if Steve Martin thinks he's showing off, <laughs> you were seeing virtuoso work. Yeah. And you look back on it and it's like, yeah, he is. He's yeah. showing you everything. I did his... Um Masterclass back when I had like the the membership. Oh yeah, it's magical. Mm. It's and it's again. So you watch that and you're like, oh yeah, you're a genius. You know, you know exactly how to use your instrument. Mm. And literally, and, and both as a banjo too. He's he's sitting yeah. there with his banjo yeah. half the time. He's like, and he just start in the middle of like he'll have a thought and start plucking away. And I'm like, and then this. But it's like this is all crafted. Like <laughs> you know exactly what you're doing the moment you're doing it. And he pulls back and he starts showing all of those old routines of his on stage that look like he's just looks just like chaos. Mm. But you see how it's like this is the formula and this is and it's all measured and it's like you just like to have that command and that knowledge of just your own process is just really, really something to be in awe of. Yeah. And his best work invites you into it. Like yeah. Roxanne does it, Ellie Story does it, the stand ups always involve the audience in some way. Like just mm-hmm. when they my favorite thing his on any album is just the magic dime trick, which like he's it's it's two lines on uh, I think it's on Wild and Crazy Guy, and it's just him. No, it's Let's Get Small because he was doing arenas. It's recorded in an amphitheater. It's a huge <laughs> crowd, and he comes out on stage and he's like, at some point in the bit, he's he just at some point in his act, he just says, "Okay, the magic darn trick." Long pause. It's gone, and you can't see anything. Like you, there's no way. There's no monitors. Like this is the joke: is that he thinks this is a great idea to do in front of. 10,000 people, none of whom can see what he's doing. And the gag that lets you in on that is his entire presence, right? Like, he never comes yeah. out and says, I got this. It's just there, that confidence in knowing that you will understand that he is doing a version of a terrible self-indulgent stand-up. <laughs> just two sentences is a whole world. And it's gone. Hilarious. It's gone! On that note, let's watch Roxanne. Okay. Yay! So good. Let's all go to the lobby. So we just finished. I'm gonna start with Ian. I never start. Oh no. Um, or we can start with E from. We have to start. You always. You start. No, I always say end. <laughs> no, uh, a- I'll start. I don't mind. I think that there's some good stuff in it, and Uh-oh. it's a movie that doesn't really work. <laughs> really? God. What? Maybe I'm. It, it didn't do it for me. Well, Norm really, really, really brought the bar up to make us want to have to like <laughs> yes, it. Yes, it's all Norm's <laughs> fault. I've heard this before. I still like it. 
What, so, I liked it. You liked it? I was charmed by it for like a good 75% of it. And there was parts of it I'm just like, I don't know why this is the movie's doing this. And part of it could like this is what now 35 years old this yeah. movie. Mm-hmm. So the play that dates back to I think the late 1700s. So that's just yeah, it, yeah. right? You know, so it's 35 it's yeah, it's a 35-year-old movie based on a much much older play. And and as a result, I think it's just yeah, it, it's it's not going to age well. I think I think any romantic comedy made before 2018 mm. is just a, I look at some of the things I wrote mm. and I'm like, "Oof, I now wouldn't have made that choice." You know, it's just because we've gotten smarter and more sophisticated and just also like we're th- things that used to be funny and tropey are just like we realize oh, you can't do that anymore. Sure. You know, because I, th- I think when you look at it from a negative lens, like Daryl Hannah's character is just a giant superficial waif. Not waif. Yeah, I don't think the movie is super interested in the interiority of her character at all. Um yeah, don't get me wrong. Like, I get why this is a movie people love, and I think it just hit me weird. Mm-hmm. And it's not like a... Uh, it doesn't live up to today's social mores thing for me. It's not quite that. I found Martin weirdly prickly in this, hmm. in a way I don't think I've seen... Like, he, Well, he was more brutish, right? Kind of. And, like, from the beginning of the movie, he just plays everything kind of with this weird chip on his shoulder yeah. that huh. I don't really recognize from most of his other stuff. He's acting in this movie. That's true, <laughs> yeah. true, but it's a it's a tone from him that I just had a hard time latching onto. Okay, I can see that. Like it's not this. It's like you can see him in the movie, but it feels like a different kind of character. I, that didn't bother me. Sure, it's also the kind of thing where you, you have to suspend disbelief in the sense that it's like this is both an actor and a character who are tremendously confident. Mm. You know. He's really that self-conscious about his nose? Like, I have a hard time buying that. That's the thing I always have a hard time with the Cyrano story, is because the the story inherently, and especially like the Peter Dinklage version earlier this year, is so invested in being like, this man is a titan among men. He is the best of all of us. He is witty. He is smart. He is tough. He is a gymnast in this for some weird reason. For fuck you, that was amazing. Oh, so that was very fun. Yeah, but it's like he's so perfect, and the irony is, is that his nose is too big and he can't get over it. But as a result, because they pump him up into such a Superman, I can never get invested in the idea that he has this self consciousness. And is the Dinklage version, I assume, because he's shorter? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, but it's simply. His defining characteristic. Whatever sure. The thing he hates most about himself is the reason that he's refined himself in all the other directions. So then in the Dinklage version, because in this sure. one, his nose comes in handy because he smells of fire. And in, in the new one, does he walk under something? He like, fights with his height. They, okay, actually, great. I mean, they've, they've stuck to the play. He's a warrior. He's a, right, he's right, a right, captain right. of a regiment. But he does. He is shown to use his size. And he kicks ass. Yeah, like he he's great. fights like dozens of guys through the course of the, the movie in that one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's better than Dinklage. Yeah, he, uh, he can do it. I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't put anybody against him. But um, the conception here of CD as someone who is just like the most charming person, he's also chosen to be the most irritating person, which mm. I think is really fun. He's even from the very beginning, he's entertaining himself. He's mm-hmm. you know, he's singing his little song when he walks down the street. He fights people who are, I think he describes them as too coked up. Hop heads or something like that. Oh, the guys that are walking with skis in the middle of the summer? It's a ski town. He says people ski topless here. But it's also the middle of the summer. They still have mountains. 
What do you ski how, down? That's oh, I guess California right. works. Right, right. Ooh, you, yeah. Well, if you go up high enough, there's still snow. Yeah, I mean, huh. they, they compare themselves to Aspen a few times. The problem is you never see it. Like, there's yeah, no... you really don't. No scenes where... But they play Nelson as Nelson. Yeah, they just don't tell you what state it's in. There's some American flags flying around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. Yeah, Nelson. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's Nelson. We, they couldn't afford to change the signs on the fire department. I don't think they had a lot of money to make this movie. I think Sony, or Sony, I think Columbia Pictures was like, you want to do what now? Ha! Steve <laughs> Martin, who just, you know, you've, you've made two or three massive blockbusters. Yeah, this was his. And then you started playing around with, like, Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid and these weird conceptual concepts like cut yourself mm-hmm. into old noir movies that didn't really succeed. I mean, there's some of the best films he's made. Those, the stuff he was doing in the early 80s. Uh, the Lonely Guy, which which is just this sad, beautiful little picture with him and Charles Roden being too undateable. I've never even heard of that movie. God, God damn it, I know! Nobody I've knows! I've never heard of it, no, no. It's... Is that even available to stream somewhere? I don't think so. Universal finally dug it out. Play it tip, Norm. I would. God, <laughs> Opening like Gala, the lonely guy. Well, no, I mean, but you know, screen it in the Putting theater. This in tech retrospectives. Um, yeah, we could easily, you could easily do a festival of like Steve Martin American tour from the early eighties <laughs> because he did some like he made yeah. choices that were not to be defined by cocaine or you know, like whatever else other people were doing their vanity projects. And he's like, I think Carl Reiner and I are going to sit in a room with a moviola and the entire Universal uh, Film Noir Library and cut me into it. And we're going to shoot it in black and white, and Bernadette Peters is going to be there, and I just want to do this. And they're like, uh, you made the jerk. Sure, here, here is some money. Sure. And then finally that burned out. Mm. And he was bouncing around a little. He was in, I think The Man with Two Brains was around that time. That was Warner, and that kind of ended it for him for a bit, because it was just a bomb. Mm. Uh, which is a shame, because it's a delight. See, I always think of him as having such a stable, steady career. He was Me too. for a while. Um, he, his cameo in Little Shop of Horrors which is the year before this, yeah. that was sort of a comeback. Huh. Because it was a, it was a return to sort of the big, broad performance thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Away for a while. And then he does this, and then he sort of bounces back and forth for years between, you know, he's in Grand Canyon right around, just after L.A. Story, where he plays a movie producer, like a Joel Silver like yeah, yeah. producer in Lawrence Kasdan's drama. He's just doing huh. all kinds of weird stuff. And where does this fall in relation to Splash? This would have been three years after Splash. So Daryl Hannah. So yeah, Daryl Hannah's a, a Daryl Hannah's at this point. Right, right, She's right. not just the discovery. Yeah, because I'm like, there's no one in this movie besides those and Shelley Duvall. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rick Rossovich was supposed to be a hunk, but it didn't happen. Oh, sure yeah. not. Oh. Yeah. The weird thing is, though, watching it again, and I haven't seen it in a while. He's good. Like he's doing. He's good a if you great, kn- dense idiot. But it, but here's the thing, because I've never seen him in anything else. I'm just like, did they just cast a guy that could play that note? I think or was, is that him? I think he was on ER for a few years. He looks kind of oh. like if Michael Rappaport and... Oh, that would be great casting. Yeah, like if him and Magic McConaughey went into the fly machine and oh came out God. wrong. <laughs> I was getting, a, maybe it's the ER thing, but I was getting like a weird Anthony Edwards from one angle, Noah Wiley oh. from another angle. <laughs> oh, that's true. But so, yeah, he is a fusion of things. So uh, what did you think, Dave? I liked it. You liked it? Well, what, you. what did you like about it? <laughs> I don't know. Ephraim just likes to listen to people talk, but yeah. But uh, but I'm curious what elements you enjoyed because the movie is 35 years old. It's like three times as old as you are. Almost. Jesus Christ! <laughs> I know that that math fucks you up, right? It's like a whole adult when I saw it. I have to lie down now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, poor Norm. Um, what elements did you enjoy? Like, there were some solid laughs. Oh yeah, there's funny stuff in it for sure. I like the funny stuff. Yeah, yeah. The seven banana brothers, the firemen, the chorus of idiots, <laughs> constantly Those, wandering around. Yeah, I was so glad that one fireman was the guy from Scrooge who has the watch. 
Michael he's, Pollard. Yeah, mm. I, you never see him in anything. And Damon Wayans is the smallest, weirdest part. <laughs> I mean, and everybody has tiny weird parts. Fred and Willard, Fred just Willard, quietly. But then it's in the, I noticed in the credits he's listed as mayor. Or he's something. the mayor. Yeah. When did that get established? He's, he's always talking about why he has the cow because it's a way. Of, he's always the one competing with oh, okay. Austin. He's the mayor. But it's but it's not yeah. clear that he's the yeah, mayor. Because it it's in there. I kind of guessed he was the mayor, he's but again, so I don't think it's super clear. I no, but it's like the only thing he seems like he's in like a. He escaped from LA and he's got like that Miami Vice suit on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he doesn't. But it was like a joke that he didn't take far enough. Oh well, I just assume that he he went there for a vacation and stayed, right? Because he's, oh. he's still got his Trans Am and all that, and he's become the mayor out of just attrition. Huh. But there is this also this wonderful, perfectly Fred Willard moment where when CD comes back to the fire station at the very end, having smelled smoke, they're all just sort of sitting around and talking. And they see him, and they sort of snap to attention. And Willard produces a, like a chamois from his pocket and starts elegantly burnishing the side of the truck, and just like he's polishing his one spot. And he does it so gracefully without even looking at Steve Martin. It's just in the corner, but he's hmm. always there. He's always present in his stuff. Yeah, yeah. I loved. I loved the little gymnast stuff. I thought there was <laughs> there was something. Oh, it was fun for sure. Yeah, that that's what they put the money into. That's what the budget when they yes. yeah. Steve Martin's double when that and noses and that's all. Yeah, and there's yeah. that little there, Texas switch where he pops up from behind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Love when they do that. Uh, the nose makeup was phenomenal, except for like a small handful of scenes where, especially watching it in like Blu-ray, you're like, yeah, yeah. I almost mm-hmm. want to say that's deliberate. It feels like there's a couple of shots where they make it really obvious. So the rest of it looks good. Like the stories about Bruce Willis's hair in Hudson Hawk, right? Where they, well, he's wearing a piece, mm. but somebody leaked the rumor that he actually paid for, cause this was impossible at the time that he paid for CG to cover up a bald spot because he was losing his hair. And that rumor I am convinced was leaked by the studio so people would look for it and then go no shut up it's real it's real <laughs> but it's the kind of thing where you fake it really obviously once and there is like a profile shot where you can see yeah it's, it's like they're outside yeah, mm. yeah it's, it's, it's the sun is really harsh or whatever yeah. but you yeah. can see the makeup the latex and there's a couple of times when the shading is wrong like it's a different color than the rest of his face once or twice but every other shot and those are early and the rest of it is great mm. and I these things are shot out of sequence those have to be deliberate they had to know that these would be the points where we fool people into not seeing it for the rest of the picture because he's like he's a he's a stand-up magician. I think you're. I, I think I, I think you're being very kind. I think they just it was just they didn't it, either they shot those early in the movie and they hadn't gotten the makeup quite right, mm-hmm. color correction, something like that. Something mm-hmm. like now you'd be able to fix it. Like I don't know why they hadn't mm-hmm. gone back and but again you don't fix those kind of things. Yeah. You just let them go yeah, because nobody to. cares enough. Yeah, and plus this is the beauty of it. You stop seeing it. The, yeah. As an audience, as an audience member, it stops registering. Well, to your mm-hmm. point, like the first time I, I they did that first close up, was like that's fantastic makeup. Yeah, but yeah, then, yeah. But then when I, it was that scene when he thinks she's talk, she's talking about him for the first time, and she asks him, and they're outside in the hill, yeah. where it was like that. It's so bad here mm-hmm. that it pulled me out of the movie, going oof. But then again, like if you're watching this on a film print, it probably looked better. Like, yeah, you probably I mean, didn't notice all the details that we have. Yeah, and I wonder if it's maybe, like, take seven and starting to go, and they just want to get the light. Yeah, could, could be. Rather than patch it up. Hmm. Yeah, who knows? There's a million reasons why. Yeah, mm-hmm. and, and Fred Skepsi, we, we didn't get the chance to talk about this in the intro, he's this Australian journeyman who's made all kinds of movies where sometimes there are prosthetics and sometimes there are not, and I think he doesn't really care. I think it's right. just more important that the scene gets shot and the characters were like he was in he was in he directed Iceman with John Lone under heavy, heavy makeup. He plays a Cro Magnum basically. 
And he made, a few years later, he made IQ with Meg Ryan and Walter Matthau played Einstein, and it's just, it's the, the hackiest makeup job. He, they get the hair right, but yeah. he's got kind of a fake thing going on under his eyes, and it's just like, you didn't need that. Nobody cares. Who's the other <laughs> actor? Is it Tim Robbins and Meg Ryan? Oh yeah, it's like she's his niece or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Not not a good movie. Yeah. Uh, So, so I want to know what you love about this movie, Norm, because I'm like, I'm kind of somewhere between the two of you on this. Well, my take on it is that it is Steve Martin putting his heart out, which he didn't do like ever as an artist until until this, and then again in L.A. Story, and then Mm. he stopped doing it again because people it makes people uncomfortable. Um, (laughs) But I think. Doing a movie about, like, adapting Roxanne in the present, oh, Roxanne, sorry, adapting Cyrano in the present day with, um, with an embrace of the text and saying, you know what, she fools herself into believing it and he believes that he can do it, it's fine, it's fine, go with it, go with it, go with it. And having the characters yell at each other, go with it, go with it, go with it, it's sort of weirdly bold for him mm-hmm. and also because his Cyrano because CD is unpleasant because he's arrogant and he's facile uh, he is a great wordsmith and that's his quality like he's a poet that was, that's right out of Rustan but the way Martin plays it he's developed all these skills to cover up the fact that he is he hates himself that he's horrified mm-hmm. with himself that he's he's never been there's a little throwaway line that he's tried to have it done like, and allergies to, like Brian George has the line he says plastic surgery he says allergy to anesthetic is not a, it's not a joke you've been in comas before and the movie mm-hmm. blows past it it's like yeah he's been in comas before because he hates himself so much that he's tried it mm-hmm. right and this is what he's trapped in and so he's constructed this entire persona but I mean anybody who has not reinvented themselves but, but tried to refine the, the qualities about themselves that they don't like can see that in this film like this is all about someone who has built an armor as Cyrano does in the original text like he he is he's a party guy but he goes home alone mm-hmm. like, he doesn't have casual affairs he's not he's not connecting to anyone because he won't let himself and he believes he's not worthy of love and that's what this play is about that's what the movie is about it's mm-hmm. about Steve Martin who had I think at this point his marriage is collapsing um if he was married at all, his relationships with, were over. He hadn't met for... Uh, or no, he had just met Victoria Tennant. They met on All of Me. So mm. that's three years earlier. And 84 is a big year for everybody in this movie. Um, but he is trying to make a movie about how he's not worthy of love. And someone has to tell him. And I think that's what he gets in performance. And that's what Daryl Hannah gets. Because... She is repeatedly, we're told how smart she is. We're told because we're not shown it, which yeah. is a problem. We're, show, we sh- we're shown that she appreciates intelligence. Yeah. yeah. And she's an astronomer, and there's a throwaway line where, you know, like, actually, she is a rocket scientist. Like, we're, to- we're given her CV, but we don't get to see her play it out. Yeah. Uh, and that would have, like, even two scenes where she's explaining things to more than one person. Mm-hmm. So more than the CV. But then again, she's only opening up to him. So... If Steve Martin is writing this as a vehicle for himself, I totally understand why he wasn't taking the time to expand anybody else. Like, Roxanne and, um, God, I can't even remember Grosvich's character's name. That's oh, Chris. Name. Chris. That's so forgettable. Yeah. Which is Christian, right, from the, from the play. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's I right. I can't even put that next to this thing. He's, what does he say at one point? He always takes a meat sandwich with him when he goes to, to the parks in San Francisco. Yeah, yeah. He is, this guy is a meat sandwich. Yeah. Like, he is that generic. 
Mm-hmm. But all the attention is on on Cyrano, on CD, yeah. because that's how the play works, and that's how Martin is obviously going to configure it if he's playing that role. Yeah, it's fascinating, because it's like... Cause I think part of it for me is just that the chemistry isn't quite there because she's underdeveloped. That's fair. Um, yeah. And so that's where I think now, 35 years later, where we have these movies, and that's also the problem with the poison of, you know, we're finally writing good parts for all the characters. Sure. Yeah. You know, <laughs> no, it is a poison. We should stop. No, no, but uh, I mean, but it, but it poisons these older movies. Yeah, sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. Where, like, you. clearly it was a star vehicle for this person, that person. We're now, like, you know, Kind of in, in in the wake of this this new era we have where there are no real movie stars anymore, except for like Tom Cruise, you know, it's like you have these movies where just like everyone can kind of pop. And in mm-hmm. and, and movies are more ensembles than they are about lead characters. Mm-hmm. That movies like this uh suffer when you watch them as a comparison because you just don't have that cast chemistry that I think is more par for the course these days. Sure. Uh, and you know when when it's a romantic movie, it's 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 harder. I didn't not like them together. There's also like clearly, I mean Steve Martin's. We all know he's got gray hair before he was an mm, old man, sure. but it's still like there feels like there's at least a, a decade or two between them. Yeah, yeah, probably about. I'm just trying to do the math in my head. Probably about ten or fifteen years. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Wait, so, par for the course in 1987. Yeah, exactly. I'm going to say it's going to turn out to be lower. Yeah, they were the right age for each other in the in, in, yeah, in that era. But, um, yeah, I, I, there's some moments that I just loved. Like, I love the beat of, like, you know, you throw the pebble out the window and it breaks. Like, But also, like, how loud that sound effect was. Oh, I, that was very funny, yes. Yeah. I greatly appreciate it. I kind of wanted, there's a moment where... When, and I know this would have been too far, but I would I was hoping for it and it didn't happen was when she's about to leave for her little trip and she's walking towards the staircase and, t- and keeps on turning back to him, I wanted her to fall down the stairs. Like, just, <laughs> like, just like in this daze of love and just, like, do a pratfall mm. and just fall. At a, it could have easily put a mat down there, but that would have made me so happy <laughs> to just have a, a stupid little bit of physical comedy there mm-hmm. in a moment that was all about her, like, light, light as a feather, and then for her to fall right on that line would have been... Anyway... That, that's what I'll do in my remake. But <laughs> yeah. I guess one thing I, I do feel like is a bit of a bump for me, though, is I'm with you on all the stuff about like him having this internal self-loathing and kind of hating him, be, being horrified by himself. But about like a third into the movie or almost to the halfway point when he thinks she's in love with him, I don't see any hesitation in him there. He's just like... Oh my god, she is. This is great. And it's about, obviously it's, like, it's about time. It's yeah, like it's setting him up for the fall, but it's I almost kind of would understand the trajectory a bit more if in that moment he was like, "Really? I don't believe it." Like and we see him have to convince himself like, "No, it's actually happening. This is great." And then gets his heart broken. But it's it is again, it's that weird thing of I have such a hard time buying what the problem in this movie is because it's so internal for him and we rarely even see him verbalize it. Yeah. That is the crux scene. Cause I had the same feeling. Like I felt the first half of that scene worked really well when you know, as the audience going, Oh, she's talking to the other guy. Sure. And yeah. He's into it. But then when the turn comes, he doesn't, it doesn't hit him hard. It's a really soft turn. He's just like, yeah. Oh, like he's not, you don't see him upset by it. Mm-hmm. You don't see, it doesn't, sh- there's no shift there. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a, it's like the key moment of the scene, and he's just like, hmm, hmm. like, and that's I think 
where I'm on the same side of Ian, where I don't feel the self-hatred as much as I I think you need to, mm-hmm. to, to buy why he wouldn't just go for it. Because, and that's part of the problem with doing this as a comedy, I think, mm. is because, and also Steve Martin is just so fucking charming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, um, to buy that this guy doesn't, has a problem with the ladies or with confidence just doesn't, it's hard. Because, and I think you needed more of that. You needed more moments of that self-loathing. Yeah, yeah. Like even in the even the, the, like the Dinklage version, I do feel like they are not shy about showing you moments where he's like, yeah. they're like, Cyrano, you're the best. Why are you out living it up? And he's like, because I hate myself, yeah, guys. That's true. He's drinking and he's making a joke of it. But yeah, yeah, yeah. It's there. It, it's really there. And in this movie, I just, I very rarely really felt it. And I know what you said. Like that thing about the anesthetic. Like it's. It's there in really blinker you'll miss at moments that are pretty dark, mm-hmm. but I kind of needed to see more of it to buy the arc in this. I can see that. Like there's like and just it's little moments of silence I think we're missing. Like there's that great scene where the guy bumps into him and he does the twenty insults to himself, right? Mm. But almost like what you want, like you want to see it be hilarious and almost like up that pace by like. 25% and just like you didn't like that 10 minute long sequence yeah but just have him go to town on himself so everyone is riotous with laughter mm. and he's basking in it and then we see him the moment after yes. he leaves and he's fucking crying and he's just got a tear rolling down his eyes walking home and you realize what that took out of him and they're all like singing his praises in the background but we know that he's the sad clown mm-hmm. I can see the fear of that being too indicate but I think I needed something like that. That's kind of that's kind of what I was missing. Just those moments where we see him alone and not just like with a bird sitting on his nose, which was amazing. Which is my which is that line I was talking about. You know, like he's using the insult that he used against himself, mm. turning it into poetry that he gave them this super charm. Yeah, just <laughs> beautiful delivery. But the the thing that. It, it, it is. I don't disagree with these things. I, I think yeah. It's weird that with Steve Martin movies, I just accept that the romantic lead thing never happened for him mm. and it's fascinating watching him play one even in this case where it's romantically by proxy and he's doing everything like off camera off screen he's writing reshouting from the darkness which is again all straight out of the play and I think oh, yeah. his fealty to the play actually maybe works against the possible success mm. in some of the choices he's, he's forcing himself to make to tell the story but if you look at something like you know, I, I'm trying desperately to think of a, rom- a genuine romantic film he made. Maybe All of Me, where even then, the se- the separation of the characters that they can't actually, Lily Tomlin is in his body and he's miming yeah. it. And it's a brilliant <laughs> physical performance, but it also short circuits the possibility of the real idea of the characters falling in love because she's, you know, dead. For sure. Um, and there's all that stuff going on. But he's never been successful as a romantic lead. And, and sometimes... Um, as in Shop Girl, which was which he co-stars in based on his own book, he's creepy. Like he's, he's <laughs> he is miscast in the role that he mm-hmm. wrote for himself. Yeah, I, I I like I like the I love the novel of Shop. Yeah, Girl. the book's great. I would argue there's a couple times it kind of works. He he like the romantic lead works, but it's mm-hmm. almost like by accident. I think like stuff like um, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. Surprisingly, like there's a story there. Like, there's a weird love story there that kind of works because you realize how, especially by the end, you realize oh she's shitty too. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean they're torturing each other. That's his deal. Um, sure. That works really well. I'm just I'm looking it up. Yeah, I'm trying I'm to just think of other ones. In my head. Like, um, what was the other one that I was going to cite? Actually, well, the lonely guy has this relationship, but it's constantly thwarted, and he meets I think it's Judith Ivy. 
and they connect very briefly and then not at all for the entire movie they keep missing each other or even you know she'll there's a bit where she writes her um Oh, they run into each other at a restaurant where he's dining alone. His, his strategy for dining alone as a, as a single man in, in the city is that he tells people that uh, he's a restaurant reviewer, so they leave him alone. They don't question him uh, by himself. That's great. And so she sees him in the restaurant, comes up, and they chat for a second. She says, I wrote my number on, on, the, on your check. I hope I see you soon. And then, of course, they say, oh, for you, there is no charge. And set the thing on fire. <laughs> yeah. as, as someone who is thwarted, as someone who is fighting uphill, sure. he, I think he's his most comfortable there. When mm-hmm. there isn't the possibility of a connection, and so here he gets to be piney and longy, and 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 how does he put it? And like just aching for someone. Sure, I love the earnestness that he plays in this, mm-hmm. and yeah. he plays it so like unafraid and really, you know, willing to put himself out there. It's, it's, it, that that stuff I really enjoy in this when it's just him in the bushes like spouting poetry to her yeah. I also find it a little weird that he writes all of those letters and we don't get to hear almost anything from them I figured there'd be like voiceover I or like text on the screen I think they're trying to ride that fine line between like being overly too poetic sure and, sure because that's just it because what I mean that that scene with um, Chris and her on the porch when he first it's like he comes off as a stock a serial killer. It's like, oh, this is what these words sound like when they're not in, on yeah. on paper. Mm. Get away. Yeah, and think about how complicated that performance is. Like he's acting like an idiot, but he has to read these lines in a threatening fashion without knowing that he's <laughs> oh. doing it. Like his eyes and his mouth are doing different things, and I'm kind of impressed. It's with quite that. masterful that scene when you realize it. Yeah, that's where they go into more stuff. Mm-hmm. He's I around. Want- he's like. In bunches of stuff, but mostly just sort of generic TV guy roles. Mm. So, just on a follow up to your to your comment about like Steve Martin's failed career in romantic comedies, you take that back. <laughs> no, but no, no, no. But like, just like the idea that it's like there's no great there's no great romantic comedy where he's the lead. Mm. Not as not as we envision romantic comedies, right? No, I would say my argument is playing strains and automobiles. Oh, well, if you're going to go the back. The buddy comedy, the yeah. buddy, like, sure. the, right? If you look at the idea of, like, you know, the, not romantic love, but love mm-hmm. between these two men. Like, I watch that movie, and I'm like, these two are going to be friends forever. Mm-hmm. By the end of that movie, right? True, sure, yeah. And, you know, they ha- it, all, it has all the elements. It has the meet cute. It has the, it's just, yeah. like, for them, it's, it's the different kind of love story where it's like they start off hating each other, and they find this true affinity for each other by the end, right? And it's the same year as this. Oh wow! Oh wow! And that's that might be my favorite movie of his. Yeah, Planes, Trains. I don't know. I mean, oh, great choice. Same. It's, yeah. Yeah. Oh, nice. That's it's, a good one. He'll he he's watched that how many times? I don't know how many times. Three. At least three or more. <laughs> I'm just glad to hear that the younger generation knows who John Candy is. Yeah. Oh, uh, he's that aware. makes me very happy. Yeah, but that was a movie too. My dad and I bonded over Planes, Trains because it was just like it was the first movie I think I, I sat listening to my dad like almost die of laughter. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then just in the, and then him and I just bonding over comedy because we didn't have a lot to bond over because he was big he was a big man's man and mm-hmm. into just things that I wasn't into but comedy was the one like thing that we shared a love of um, and that movie in particular like I have a fondness for it I think because of that too mm-hmm. but also it's just great yeah that's yeah, no, a mm-hmm. good one it's an engine like it just doesn't stop no and Martin I'm just trying to think like he he is so good at being angry. And comically angry, like he can find that note. Yeah, yeah. To, to sort of, you want to see. I mean, they tried. 
to cast him in sort of quasi-villainous roles, stuff like The Spanish Prisoner or Novocaine, where he's playing dark characters, but it's not where his heart is. Mm, Which I've always found fascinating about him. Like, he can do anything he wants. And especially now, again, after Only Murders, because, like, he can write his own ticket. He's been on Broadway. He's been uh, in movies. He's done... I think he's done actual stage plays rather than just reviews. But he's, he's... written them if not starred in them yeah. um, Picasso and oh I love it Le Panagio is a great one yeah, yeah yeah. and he isn't happy which I find fascinating like he's not happy with the career that he has which people would murder for people that's, would sell their that's everyone for. that's everyone. Yeah. everyone nobody's ever happy with the career they have because they're always looking at the career they wanted to have and sure. that, that doesn't, unless you're like Tom Cruise again yeah <laughs> no no I think Tom Cruise won't be happy until he kills himself in the service of a stunt oh that's just, he wants to go to, Val, to Valhalla yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> and his Valhalla is dying on a movie set yeah yeah absolutely <laughs> making them use that yeah. take was, yeah. it, was it you was it, I was just quoting somebody in an episode of someone else's movie and I couldn't remember who said it but it was somebody who was saying that Tom Cruise's last movie will be the first IMAX snuff film oh god oh. no I did not say that I wish I'd said that line that's great me too did not say it but, um, but it yeah came, he's just setting himself up to die inside. it came up and it's just like I don't know if he's trying to kill himself but he definitely wants this to end like whatever all of this is he wants <laughs> like I think he'd be perfectly happy to be ahead for a while and just sit around and wait for like whatever great Scientological miracle is going to come and give him a body again mm. but I think he wants this the Tom Cruise thing to be over mm. and it's getting depressing what makes you think that the fact that he keeps trying to kill himself in all these movies. <laughs> Fair or point. Do, or do serious harm um, to himself. It's you know, like true. He broke his foot shooting a Mission Impossible rooftop cake chase and insisted they keep the take. That's not good. That's not right. Yeah. No. And there's, <laughs> there was another one he did. I think it was like, I don't know if it was on that movie or if it was the Mission Impossible after that. Was that the last one? I think it was the second last one. The, yeah. the last one, I think it was like when he was done that crazy helicopter stunt. Right. After he got out of that, or or was the diving one? Either one, one of them. When they finally got the take, he stood in front of everyone and says, "Are you not entertained?" That's <laughs> yeah, that's not, not healthy. healthy. No, that's not no. Healthy. <laughs> Imagine he like just if, needs to go back to comedy. If these people had been yeah, talking. more risky businesses from this guy, right? More Tropic Thunder. More, yeah. Oh yes, absolutely more Tropic Thunder. You need those hairy hands. <laughs> oh my god, the knuckles! It's the knuckles. <laughs> Imagine if someone had loved these people as children. Oh, just just. That's just—it's not a way to live. I mean, okay, millions of dollars, billions of dollars—you get to do whatever you want. But, no, but, it's not but, but that's what's fat. We, we were talking uh, beside Norma's uh, my copy from the library, the sticker in the head, the second book of Judd Apatow's like collected conversations. And what I loved about the first one is kind of what you're talking about is as you read these essays or these conversations he has with other people, you realize that Judd Apatow has a theory that every comic has a miserable childhood or like parents that or just a terrible childhood that usually sure, the sure. parents in divorce they're unhappy people until he gets to Jerry Seinfeld and Jerry Seinfeld breaks that mold and he and he's like angry talking to him because he can't figure out what's wrong with him and he realizes there's nothing is and but it doesn't fit Judd Apatow's like rule in his head of comedy people have to be tortured or hurt somehow and something bad had to happen to them yeah Seinfeld had a happy childhood and he became a miserable adult fair enough but <laughs> no but just the way he talked anyway it's not yeah. Jerry, but I know what you mean. I, yeah, yeah no, I take not your the point. Only one, yeah. But there's a couple in there where, you, where you, if you just read enough of the interviews, you're like, you see him leading them towards him trying to prove that theory mm-hmm. over and over and over again, yeah. just to justify his own unhappiness with his own childhood. Oh yeah, the first book's fascinating. <laughs> to to also be a 16 year old who cons his way into long conversations with mm. people he admires, that alone 
says there's something else missing in your life, right? Yeah. Like he, and he's trying, he's trying to create his own therapy by talking to all of these people who are doing the thing he wants to do. And right, right, right. Part, yeah. of it, part of it is about finding the path, but part of it is about what did you go through that I'm going through that I can use. Mm-hmm. And it's like, it's great. The right. book's a fantastic read. But yeah, you do absolutely very quickly see how he's pushing the theory. Yeah. In most of these conversations. The headline here is that we're all miserable and that's okay. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. So we should just get over it and enjoy. I don't know a lot of funny people who were healthy from the beginning. No. 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 And then the chill fills the room. <laughs> and Ephraim just looks at me like, what you, he knows my damages. Yeah. <laughs> look at that look! If looks could kill. I did want to say, speaking of comedy, though, Ephraim, you've mentioned comedy a couple of times. What kind of comedies are your jam? I don't know. Just anything that's funny. Well, that's cool. He's like he's got a very deep appreciation of like every. It's, it's very much like mine. It's unfortunate he's you know he watches what I watch <laughs> and whatnot. But it's like what? No, but I mean in terms of just like you you yeah, appreciate. It's unfortunate that I watch your movies. No, no, not my house. <laughs> wow. No, but I mean just in the sense that you've got a pretty nuanced flavor of comedy. Like you get. You know, stuff that's, you know, dry and dark. You love dark. Something dark that comes out of nowhere and just kind of, like, hits you is really your jam. But you get, like, subtle, nuanced things. Like, we're now we're watching things that, you know, probably five years ago, the adult Joker went over his head. Mm-hmm. And now, you know, we're watching it and his sister doesn't get it, but he just looks at me or, or his mom. Mm-hmm. And, you know, has a little smile and we're like, yeah. <laughs> like, he's getting it. <laughs> but it's nice. just, like, he has a great deep appreciation for... Like, lots of different levels of comedy, but I think your jam would be definitely dark. Oh, Things good. that push the envelope a little bit. That's a good place to be. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I yeah. mean, we were talking about some stuff from the late 70s, uh, the stuff that, you know, that was a, was almost a, a parry towards. It was it was saying, no, this is funny. Don't do, don't, you know, like, Silver Streak mm. is great and all, but it's also longer than it needs to be, <laughs> kind of heavy. And that defined comedy, you know, Silver Streak and Foul Play and that stuff. Those studio pictures from the late 70s where the music is telling you how to feel mm. and the jokes are, you know, it's not that you can see them coming, you can see them showering and leaving the house. Like yeah. it's, just, it's just way too obvious. And nobody remembers, like, foul play with Chevy Chase and Goldie Hawn. Oh, I do. Yeah. Wow. It's not, it's, it does, it, when did you see it? Like, I saw it when I was eight. Okay. Because I was at my aunt's house and they rented it and I shouldn't have. Right. It's um, kind of, it's a little racy for the day. Yeah, yeah. No, I but I I I had occasion to revisit. God, that sounded convoluted. I stumbled across the movie Scavenger Hunt from 1979. I think who's yeah. that? Everybody. Like <laughs> R- Richard Benjamin, Richard Masur, uh, Vincent Price. It's one of those terrible studio LA pictures. It basically looks like television. It is cut like TV. It's a it's a madcap race of people running around Los Angeles trying to collect things to... Tax satisf- credits? Satisfy, <laughs> satisfy a millionaire's crazy will. Oh, good. I love uh, those. <laughs> well, I had seen it twice as a mm-hmm. kid, and I had forgotten it completely. And it turned up on this Kino Cult streaming service, which is a free Kino service, which is great. It's like Mario Bava and uh, Jean Roland and Jess Franco like all the really sleazy European auteurs are there yeah. plus a bunch of 70s and 80s stuff that I hadn't found anywhere else and I was really impressed and then I saw this tile scavenger and I was like that, why does that ring a bell and I clicked on it and started playing automatically it's like oh my god I remember everything in this it's floating back in it's terrible <laughs> but it is the kind of movie that you went to see if you didn't like Steve Martin ah right and his films now feel like this 
this career-long art project to get people to just think a little bit more about the comedy that they're seeing and the stuff sure. that they're consuming. And Roxanne is like, it's clearly like he's found a classic and he's holding it up to them and going, look, this is what I think real art is. Why aren't we making movies like this? And the answer is kind of because they turn out like Roxanne because they're hybrids that don't hold up very well and mm. things miss. I still love its pure heart. Uh, yeah. it's- oh, I'm definitely not trying to like convince anyone to not like Roxanne. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like said. Um, I think for me, it's it's just got tonal challenges. Like it doesn't quite know what it wants to be, or it's it's not accomplishing it. And it fills a lot of time with just business, like just goofy business. And don't get me wrong, like the fireman stuff is all funny. It it feels like a completely different movie to me. But that's it. It's also like, really, do we buy that these guys are this inept, or is is he? Is he? Because that really speaks more that he's bad at teaching them. Mm-hmm. Right, well, but that is his job in the play. Like this is again, Fair this enough. is a problem. It's yeah. him figuring out how to come Teach up with these something people. that works as it did on stage because it opens up the story. Yeah, I know. Yeah. It gets them out of the. But there are scenes where I think Skepsi is just clearly shooting that porch like a proscenium, sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and acknowledging that this is a stage story. Yeah. But then you have these beautiful vistas and firemen running around them and, and stuff happening outdoors all the time because it's desperate to open up the story. Mm. But it really is. Like, it's a romance of, of minds between mm. three people, yeah. two of whom have them, and a one third who is inept. Nice. And, yeah, <laughs> yeah the, only, the scene that bugged me the most was that one where he drops out of the tree randomly and then convinces the four old ladies to go and break up the sex, yeah. but then they don't. Yeah. No clue what that was meant. That scene could have been cut out completely, and you would never have missed it. Because, and it also kind of steps on that, because you're expecting them to go cut to their house and see the whole yeah. thing. Yeah, Because it cuts on the whole joke, although the joke still plays beautifully, of when uh, he says, oh, I couldn't, I just couldn't do it the third time. And Martin even does a double take. I'm like, see, that's a great joke. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, that was, there was a couple little beats. That, there was another beat where he was like, it's the, and it plays to the back of him where he's walking away from us and just like rambling to himself. And it almost feels like it was an ad lib that they were just so amused with that they kept. I wondered if a lot of that was reshoots because he's the only actor there. Like he's the only, right. he's the only lead there and maybe they just figured out in testing that people wanted more Steve Martin. Just more bits. Yeah. yeah is that, that the opening sequence with, like, the fight with Kevin Nealon? And, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, maybe, maybe it wasn't funny enough. Yeah, maybe. And I then, wonder. But, but I, I mean, I saw this in a theater in 87, and it played. Mm. The, um, I remember actually noticing this time that the, the, sh- the exterior shot of BC, of Nelson, just goes on way longer after the 20 insults, because the audience was laughing, and they just added, mm. like, dead space to let the laughs roll. Wow. And that happened. It was nice. there. Yeah. No, it's funny. It's, it's all funny. But it's just it's just the nature. It's it's hard to make comedies age well. True. You know? I will say that despite the fact that Daryl has characters underwritten, like the movie, you know, out, and outside of like just the guy being a bumbling idiot who says inappropriate things to women, like it doesn't come off as misogynistic. Oh no, nothing like or that. Or anything like that. Yeah. So it's well, like you have John Capitalist's character for that, right? Like he, <laughs> yeah, but he's the idiot. Yeah, so it's okay. So he makes Chris okay. The, what's that yeah. story? Yeah, that's definitely what he's. Like all, he all the dead things. All things dead. All things dead. Oh god, <laughs> such a weird throwaway. Yeah. But I love it. that's Daryl Hannah's best line, and she's like, "This is perfect for you." Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I mean that shows us that she has the same kind of rapier wit that he. That's has. the smartest thing she says in the movie. Yeah, that's, that's, that's I could have used more jokes from her like that, just to show that she she and him were kind of on the same way, wavelength. You get a little bit like they do do a decent job of developing her character in the first act, but then it just then she just becomes like 
reading letters and breathing heavy yeah. out of a response of how much in love she is. Yeah, which is, again, like, true to the text. Sure. But a problem yeah. that can't be overcome. It happens in Cyrano, too, like, where Haley Atwell is introduced. Her, Roxanne, is, is a brilliant writer, and she's, like, her fencing with the Duke and, and uh, yeah. with... Um, Ben Mendelsohn's character where she right, can't stand yeah. him and she's insulting him constantly and that's something they beefed up for the play and for the film with this new version and she still has to fall for Christian like you, yeah. you can't get around the fact that this incredible vivacious smart person is dopey in love yeah, with, yeah. with the hunky boy yeah. and there's no way around it and so it, every adaptation has to struggle with this the only one that doesn't really is the Depardieu version from 1990 where they just kind of skip right past it Oh really? They just they show them canoodling, but they don't. The scenes with, um, yeah, Roxanne's scenes with Cyrano are still just conversational. I mean, when you got a hunk like Depardieu on the screen, you don't want to take any time away from him. Depardieu plays the Chris character. No, no, I was gonna say. Cyrano, and and it's perfect. Like he is unlikable <laughs> visually. This guy, like he's <laughs> oafish and big, and he's got the nose, but he's also just. He puts his voice in a slightly higher register to make himself even more repellent. It's, oh, wow. it's a good call. Okay. And then the next that. year, he's in green card with Andy McDowell, and America loved him. Yeah. For 16 <laughs> hours. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Deferred fever really was a yeah. thing. No one remembers my father the hero. There's a reason for that. I oh. remember the poster. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Gave us Catherine Heigl. Oh, that's good. There you go. Yeah, sure. Uh, so, final thoughts. I still love it. God <laughs> damn it. I, I had forgotten how many little bits I've just sort of internalized and kept with me, little lines and throwaways. Um, yeah, it's just... I'm on, I, I will forever be in Steve Martin's corner and hoping he finds the happiness he deserves Aww. as an artist <laughs> that people see what he can do. Like, even Only Murders casts him. He wrote it, created it. He casts himself as a has-been TV actor. He hates himself. <laughs> I, I am sad for Steve Martin because he has this amazing art collection and this love of... He's a philanthropist. He he's, he has lived a good life, I think, or he has tried to. But, yeah, he's still not getting where he wants to be. Oh, I think he's on a, one of the most critically acclaimed comedies that's on the air right now oh, with know. his best friend. I think he's having a good time. Ask him in five years and he's like, people didn't like it enough. It'll, it'll, be, he'll ne- it'll never be enough. Uh, maybe. Yeah. Maybe. But I love him and I want him to be happy. <laughs> no, I like uh, final thought. Like, I can definitely see why people like this movie and why it's a classic and why why people find it charming. It's just something about the chemistry of it just feels off to me mm. on a very subtle but internal level that made it really hard for me to embrace. Yeah, Ibram. Um, I feel like only Chris, um, whatever Steve Martin character's name CD? was, CD, yeah, yeah, yeah CD. And um, uh, Roxanne only had characters, and nobody else had a. For sure, yeah. You know, only like written characters. Yeah, yeah. It's it's very yeah. Even um, Shelley Duvall is wasted in this movie. (laughs) It took me a a long time to realize that was Shelley Duvall. Because I'm like, oh, they got this like Shelley Duvall lookalike to play this tiny bit part. No, no, that was actually her. Yeah, I, 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 I think that if this is a movie I'd seen as a child, I'd just have more of a fondness for it. But having seen it for the first time now, it's just, it's one of those movies you go, huh, I'm really glad I watched it. Cause there's same, of, yeah. There's a lot of great bits in there, and I really appreciate it. But I think it's just like, it didn't age nearly as poorly as a lot of movies from this period did. Oh, sure, yeah. Except for the saxophone. 
Yeah, the jazz saxophone just overpowering everything. I could feel you when that opening credit number started. You were both just going, oh dear. Yes. Oh, yeah. This it's just no, a wall of Kenny G. It's yeah, great. It's, it's <laughs> Whenever you watch something from the 80s, it's just like the music and the, the wardrobe and hair are going to be a sp- certain thing, and that's just what it is. I have to say, the wardrobe wasn't as bad as I thought no. it would be. No, it, it's, it's actually oddly modern. Yeah. It's just, what's his face's character? Um, Capitalist. No, um, uh, Fred Willard. No, Fred Willard. Yeah, oh, yeah. He's, <laughs> he's the only yeah. one that looks like he's in the 80s. Yeah. The rest yeah. of them kind of look like they're just small town whenever. Yeah, yeah. and I, I did too. like, before we wrap up completely, I really appreciated the fact that you can see the same extras in the movie throughout. It gives you mm. the sense that it's a really small town. Yeah. There's the first woman who notices Chris who, uh, when he gets picked up by Capitalist with short haircut. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sort of a, just, I don't think she has any lines at all, but she's got a, a very memorable face like her bone structure is great with her with her haircut and so she keeps showing up she's in the restaurant where mm-hmm, people mm-hmm. and stuff and she's just around and she's at the bar all the time and she's just like there and then I noticed this time through a couple of the older character actors are in there too just yeah like, like the four little old ladies are in the back of a lot of scenes mm-hmm. and yeah yeah it's great yeah, that's and, really nice yeah it's just there's a thoughtfulness to that stuff mm-hmm. that I, I still appreciate that you didn't see a lot of at the time yeah mm-hmm. well thanks for coming over I will fight for this movie. (laughs) (laughs) Let's all go to the. Thanks for joining us for Roxanne. Black Hole Films is a proud member of the That Shelf Podcast Network. You can listen to other episodes of our show and other That Shelf podcasts on thatshelf.com. Please subscribe, leave comments, spread the word, do all the things that let others know you like the show and how they can check it out. You can find me on Twitter at LonJeremy and go to Facebook and join the group Black Hole Films. And until next time, go watch something you've never seen before. Thanks. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat.